going to be turning in your Bibles to 1 Peter, the third chapter. I want to talk to you this morning about the word justified. And that is the next article of faith, as we've been looking at the articles of faith for a number of weeks, off and on. We come to Article 5, and this is from the 1847 Zion Primitive Baptist Church Articles of Faith. And this is what it says. We believe that sinners are justified only in the sight of God by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is an article of faith that focuses on the work of Christ. Justification is a legal term, and it's a theme throughout the entire Word of God. You can find justification in the portion of Scripture that Brother Luke has shared with us this morning from Genesis, where man fell from being just in the sight of God or innocent. That's what justification means. And you come on down to the oldest book of the Bible, which is the book of Job. And Job himself said, I know it is so of a truth. But how should man be just or innocent with God? The wisest man aside from Christ that ever lived, Solomon, spoke in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 20. For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. And we come to our text this morning of 1 Peter 3. And we read in verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Justification is an absolute must. To be declared innocent before God is a must for the child of God to have favor with God now in this life and ultimately in the real life, the next life, the eternal life, to be able to stand before God. We must be declared innocent. So, of course, the big question is, how does that happen? (laughs) Can we in some way, and can is there some mechanism by which we ourselves can declare ourselves innocent and just? The Word of God teaches that you can't. It goes back to what I talked to you about last week, original sin. When Adam sinned in the garden... We fell into sin. Mankind is lost and guilty before God because Adam broke one commandment. So there's no way that we in and of ourselves can get back to God, can get back in fellowship with God. We can't look up to God and say, I declare myself ceremonially just, or I declare myself in terms of courtroom language. You know, I I declare myself as not guilty or innocent. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. Because of what Adam did. You see how these build upon each other? These are not just random statements. Well, I think this or I think that. These are methodical, truthful things from the Word of God that build upon one another. And when you see them, it makes perfect sense. And when you see them, nothing else can make any sense anymore other than this. When you see original sin and why we need a Savior... Why we need to be declared just. So here is a startling statement about the mechanism or the way in which we as children of God are determined to be innocent. He says, Christ 
also hath once suffered for sins, one time, notice that it was a one-time event, the just for the unjust. Now that just doesn't seem fair, doesn't? You know, people talk about, especially when you believe in the truths of election and God's choosing and all that, that you'll often hear, well, it's just not fair. Well, the most unfair thing that has ever happened in the history of the world was a completely innocent man standing in the place of billions of guilty people and taking their sins upon him and paying for their sins, sins to declare them innocent. There's nothing more unfair than what Christ did to save his people. It's totally unfair. So if you ever get in that conversation, it's a good idea to ask that question. You know, Jesus did that. They would ask him a question. He'd ask him a question back. Well, it just doesn't seem fair that God would choose some, choose these and leave these other out. If you see grace, it's a mystery why he chose anybody. When you see original sin and what man did with what God gave him and what we do by nature that we take on from Adam, it's a mystery that God chose anybody. Right. <laughs> and so it might be a good idea to say, well, how fair was it for a completely innocent individual to stand in the place of guilty, wicked sinners? It's not fair at all. I've used this example before. You think about the person that you hold in the highest esteem in this life. You might be your grandmother, it might be your parents, it might be a friend. But you think about that person. And in your mind, of course, you know everybody does wrong. There's no man or woman or child just before God. But you hold them in high esteem and you think this person could just do no wrong. They are just, they just, do, they just seem to do right in every circumstance. You know, those folks are few and far between. But think about that person that you hold in such high regard. And then think about a Charles Manson or a Hitler and just imagine in your mind the bar of justice comes to a Hitler or a murderer like Charles Manson or some wicked, vile, clearly guilty person that says, I did it. <laughs> you know, they're not even saying, well, I didn't do it. They're saying, I did it. I own up to it. And then just imagine at that court proceeding, at the last moment, after they've been de declared, they've admitted their guilt, they've been declared guilty, they've been sentenced to die, and they're about to go to the electric chair or lethal injection or whatever it may be. In the old days, many years ago, a hanging. <laughs> and at the last moment, before that wicked person who has admitted their guilt and has confessed and deserves everything they're getting, all of a sudden, that person who you hold in the highest regard who we know is a sinner, but still you hold them in the highest regard. They walk up and they say, I'll take that killer's place. I'll take that murderer's place. How happy would that make you? <laughs> if that was my, one of my relatives or my parents or my grandmother or granddaddies or whatever, I'd be like, no, no, that is so unfair. How can they who have never done what that person has done, how can we allow them to stand in the place of a wicked, confessingly guilty person? It just doesn't, it's not fair. And then imagine, we're not talking about the person that you esteem and hold in the highest regard. We're talking about somebody who really is perfect. The Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only just, capital J, just man who has ever lived and never done anything wrong. He takes the place of those that are guilty. And look, you don't have to envision yourself as a Charles Manson or as a, uh, you know, as a Hitler, the Word of God says that man at his best is altogether vanity. 
You can just imagine even that best person that you esteem and regard and such, you know, hold in such high esteem. They're altogether vanity without God. You see? The most moral person on the face of the earth without God's spirit in their heart is still, God declares them, man is altogether vanity at his best. You see? So it's not just the worst of the worst. When it comes to man, it's the best of the best. And can we agree that Adam, when he was made in his innocency, he was the best of the best. Genetically, physically, Adam was the best. He was innocent and he fell when he committed that sin. And here we are. And now it takes a completely just man, who was also God, to come and pay for our sins and stand in our place. And that's how we are justified. This theme of justification is all the way through the Word of God. Romans 3.24 says, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption in Christ. Romans 4.25 says, delivered for our, He was delivered for our offenses, raised again for our justification. And then, of course, we have uh, 1 Peter 3 where he says, The just was substituted for the unjust that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Thank goodness He was the God-man because the man part of Him sacrificed and died, but the God part of Him never wavered, never died. That's how He's able to take Himself back up again. That's how He's able to be resurrected because of the God part of Him. Now listen, I don't want to go off on a sidetrack, but I do want to mention this to you because if you go and study justification after I preach this message to you, which I hope you will, you may come across several different contexts of justification. And the Word of God, especially in the New Testament, teaches three contexts of justification. And I refer to them as three different courtrooms. And that's not because I'm a lawyer. <laughs> but it does help. I do understand it because I am a lawyer. But I, I didn't come up with this because I'm a lawyer. This is something I didn't come up with at all. But it's the way that it's been looked at to help understand justification in the Word of God. There's three courtrooms of justification in the Word of God. There is the courtroom of justification by works, where somebody else sees what you do, and they say in their mind, they declare that person, that must be a child of God. Have you ever done that? You see somebody do something good, and you say, that is such a God-fearing person. That's justification by works. That's a little bitty courtroom down here on earth, Okay. And then there's another courtroom, and it is the courtroom of your heart, your own mind and heart. And that's called justification by faith. Faith is the gift of God that God puts in your heart. You understand it's the fruit of the Spirit. And in your heart, you can see that you are just because of, what, of seeing what God has done for you. That's justification by faith. You understand that your justification by faith in the courtroom of your heart will never satisfy you if you look to something that you have done. I made a decision. I prayed a prayer. I got baptized. I did all these different things. For eternal justification, it will never satisfy you. But when you submit yourself to what Christ did in your mind, you say, I have nothing within me. Christ is everything. That's justification by faith. Because the faith doesn't point to you. A lot of people have faith in their faith. Well, I have faith and believe I'm saved because of what I did. Justification by faith in the courtroom of your heart says, there's nothing good that I can do. So I look to Christ. And you say, well, sometimes when I think that way, it makes me cry. Praise God. 
because it makes you weep over who you are and rejoice over who Christ is. That's justification by faith in the courtroom of your little heart. That's another little courtroom, isn't it? The one we talk about today is the greatest courtroom that's ever been. It is the courtroom of the bar of justice in heaven itself. And in the Word of God, it's called justification by grace. It's called also justification by blood. You can't contribute to that. I can't contribute to that. Only Christ can do that. So in the courtroom of heaven, you've got justification by grace. That is the highest court that you could ever appeal to or reach. Okay? So that's what we talk about here today. Maybe another day we'll talk about those justification by faith in the courtroom of your heart or justification by works, which is the courtroom of men's minds when they see the good works that you do for the glory of God. But that's for another day. Today we talk about justified by the work of Christ alone in the courtroom of heaven. Now, back in 1 Peter 3, it says the just for the unjust. The word just means equitable in character or in act, innocent, holy, righteous. And unjust means wicked or treacherous or heathen or unrighteous. So how does, how does that work? What are the mechanics of how we go from being unjust to being just? Turn to 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. I want you to see the mechanics of how the Lord accomplished this. 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to read towards the end of the chapter. Let's begin reading in verse 17. Follow the language now of what he says here. How are we justified? How can we stand innocent before God? There's many people out in the religious world today that think that they stand innocent before God because of, of things that they've done or said or acted, when in reality, those things apply to a different courtroom. Justification by faith, courtroom of the heart, justification by works, courtroom of the opinions of men. But we're talking about how are we going to stand before the Lord one day and be innocent? Look at verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. This is talking about the new birth. And all things are of God. All those new things, all that new perspective, all those things that are fresh and beautiful and new that you once maybe did not care for, that's because God has worked in the heart of a child of God. And He has reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ, not by your thought or your prayer or your work, but He's reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us, that's me, that's Brother Luke, that's even you as an individual believer, given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Notice He did not give us the work of reconciliation, but He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, what is that? This is, the, this is a description of the ministry of reconciliation. And it's a description of what I preach to you. That God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Don't ever forget the language there. It's so important in your King, King James translation. Because out there in the world today, a lot of people are thinking, well, we've got the work of reconciliation to carry on. We don't do the work of reconciliation, but I bring to you the word of reconciliation. The difference is, I'm telling you what Christ did for you. And if you believe it, that means you're already His child. Now watch this. Now then, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Did you know that? That you are an ambassador. Now what is an ambassador? An ambassador is somebody that represents another nation. 
as ambassadors for Christ, I am a representative of Jesus Christ. And it's upon me as an ambassador from a foreign country that I have never been to. I've never been to that foreign country. But I am an ambassador, and I hope and pray that I am accurately and effectively representing the king who I am an ambassador for. I sure want to. I want to represent the heart of God to you. I want to represent with accuracy what God says about what He did. I'm an ambassador for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. That's not a contradiction, okay? Christ has carried on the work of reconciliation. And whether a child of God born of the Spirit will ever even admit that in their life, it does not negate or change the fact that He has done it. See, this is how babies in the womb are saved. A baby in the womb that's maybe miscarried or a baby that, that gets sick and dies in the womb or, God forbid, a baby who's a child of God whose life is snuffed out by the abortioner's knife before they can come into the physical world in the sense of living, breathing, and so forth. There's only one way that that baby can be saved, you see. Job even spoke of this. He said, oh, that I had been an untimely birth. <laughs> That's a miscarriage. Job himself, who we know is a child of God, said it would have been better off for me with all the trouble that I've been through. I should have just been a miscarriage. The, the fact that he had, if he had been miscarried or an untimely birth as a child and born, still born, born dead, or if he lived the life of 100 plus years that he lived, he's still a child of God. And you see, a child who's in the womb cannot speak. They cannot acknowledge what's been done for them. You see? They can't say, well, you know, I believe that the Lord has saved me. They don't have a voice yet. Isn't it great to know that whether a person has a voice yet or not, the work of reconciliation, the work of atonement, the work of justification applies to God's people no matter where they are or what their circumstance is. That's good news. That's very good news to be able to share with you that it's, it's not me who has the work of reconciliation. It's God. Now, when he says, not imputing their trespasses against them. Notice in our article of faith this morning, it says we believe that, that we are justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ. This is the mechanics of how you are justified. The word impute is an accounting term. It means to estimate or to take inventory or to conclude. To reckon is what it means. So notice, it says that he was not imputing or reckoning your trespasses to you. You get that? So when God took account of your life, when God took account of mankind, he did not reckon your, the children of God chosen in Christ, he did not reckon their trespasses to their account. In his mind, he reckoned their trespasses to the account of his perfect son. So he takes on what we should have paid for. Now watch verse 21. For he, how did that happen? For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You understand what that means? He was made to be sin. He was made to be something that he had never been before and that he never will be again. That's why the sacrifice of Christ was one time. And in taking our sins upon him 
and being made something that he was not and suffering as a consequence of your sins, then that has declared us righteous in him because he absorbed all of those sins and took them on. Turn to Isaiah 53, which gives you great detail about what happened when he went to the cross. You understand that Christ was perfect. He didn't have a sin. He didn't have a sinful thought. And so when he went to the cross and when he paid for our sins and the sins of his people were laid upon him, he went somewhere he'd never been before and praise God, he'll never go there again. But look at Isaiah 53. We want to pick up in verse 4. This is talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. And I might point out that what you have here in Isaiah 53 is the perspective of God the Father looking upon the Son when this was taking place. This is the thoughts of God the Father as He burdens Isaiah to speak these things so we can see what's going on at the cross. Surely, verse 4, He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. I want you to notice that the word grief right there, it means malady or anxiety or calamity. You might say it like this. When Christ was on the cross and our sins were imputed to Him, He was made to be sin. It wasn't like God in heaven just reckoned, okay, well, I'll just reckon this over there to them and didn't actually do it. He actually put the sins, uh, put our sins upon Him. You see? And He bore our sorrows. Every calamity, every anxiety, every fear that you've ever had, it even can mean disease. Every sickness that's ever come upon a child of God, it says that He carried, He, he bore our griefs, and He carried our sorrows. The definition of the word sorrows right there means anguish or affliction. The, the consequence the, result, the resulting consequence of every sin that we have ever committed, He bore that. He carried that with Him to the cross. And it says, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God. We looked upon that and we look upon it by the eye of faith and we think, how in the world? But, verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. The word transgression means a revolt, a rebellion. It can be a national rebellion like a, like a nation revolts or a people of a nation revolt. It means to trespass. He carried our trespasses and our transgressions upon Him. He was wounded for that. The stripes that wounded Him were wounded for your sake so that He would pay for your transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The word iniquities, right there, it means falling short or evil or mischief or sin. That's what iniquities means. So He's borne our anxiety. He's carried our sicknesses. He's borne the result of our consequence of our sin. And he's born, He is wounded for our transgressions, our revolt against God. And He is bruised for our sin or our iniquity, how we violate God's peace. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. You get that picture? You want to know the mechanics of how we are declared innocent or just before God? It is because God laid the sins of, of us, of, our, of His people, His chosen people, upon the Son of God. And I've said before that I wonder if He had a little more grief and pain when 
Brother Tim's sins were laid on him. I don't understand it. I don't know if it went minute by minute, second by second, if the Lord just poured it all on him at one time. I don't know for sure, but I sure feel sorry and guilty over the fact that he had to pay for my sins. Now look, this isn't a guilt trip. <laughs> It's not a guilt trip. Like, I'm going to guilt you into serving God because of what Christ, you know, Christ had to bear your sins. But it does make an impact on us when we think about somebody else paying for something we did. I've told you the story before of when Brother Tim was out on the playground over there at the schoolhouse. There was very little supervision going on outside there. And I started, I was in sixth grade, and I started tossing the rocks at the little girl in seventh grade that I didn't like, and she didn't like me. I hit her a couple times with the rocks, and I don't know what I was thinking because she had an 11th grade, big, tough, mean brother. <laughs> and here comes that big, tough, mean brother over to me, and he's about to box my ears or worse. You don't throw you know, stones and hit my sister. Well, I just kept on throwing stones, you know. I don't have any sense. Probably don't today. But then my brother showed up, who was ninth grade, I guess. And he goes and stands between me and that big brother who was taken up for her sister. And I wish I could tell you that it really hit me right then. And I just felt guilty for all my sins. And I cried out, I'm sorry, little girl. I never should have thrown those stones at you. But you know what I was doing? I was standing behind my brother Chris throwing stones over the top of him. Still trying to hit her. And that big brother said, get out of my way. I'm fixing to take care of your little brother. I was guilty. I'm, I'm showing my guilt by still throwing stones. And Brother Chris said, I'm not going to move. And he stood there and he took a couple hits from that guy who rightly was trying to protect his little sister. But Brother Chris, you know, and it didn't hit me. I didn't say, thank you, Brother Chris. That was so, uh, you, you know, the just for the unjust. You took upon yourself my sins and bore them so valiantly. I didn't do that. I probably just ran off in the woods and started playing with somebody else. But through the years, I've thought about that. He stood there and he took my transgressions and he paid the punishment for my sin where I was trying to throw a rock at that little girl. I still remember that to this day, just like it was yesterday. You know why I remember that? Because I study the Word of God and I see in the Word of God that the just one, much more just than me or, or my brother who stood in the place of my sin, the only just one that's ever lived stood in the place for me and paid for my sins. And I think about that. That was a small microcosmic example of a way that someone stood and took the punishment that I deserved. And I have thanked Him since then. One way I thanked him is I preached about it several times. You see that? You may not think about it at the time, but you'll look back at some point on something like that. And if you're a child of grace and you've been touched by the grace of God, and you'll say, I deserved every bit of what I should have gotten at that point. And when it comes to Calvary, it should have been you and me hanging on that cross. So there is an element of guilt in terms of thinking about what Christ has done, but then there's an element of joy. I don't have to pay for my sins in the lake of fire because Christ paid for my sins. Matthew 27 and 19, listen to the language of Pilate. 
This wicked ruler who stood as the judge over Christ whenever he was brought to the bar of justice before the hands of men. Matthew 27 and 19, when he was set down, that's Pilate in his, on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him. A pagan ruler's pagan wife sends unto this governor in the middle of this trial. And, he, and she says, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. You see, even the dream of a pagan ruler's wife testified to the fact that Jesus Christ was innocent. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas, who was a murderer... And destroy Jesus. They were going to make a prisoner exchange right there. Shall I re release unto you Jesus, this just man? Or shall I release unto you Barabbas, who was a wicked murderer? <laughs> kind of sounds similar to that situation I gave to you at the beginning of the message. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Now don't think for a second that that absconded or alleviated Pilate from all the responsibility of this kangaroo court that he had going on here. He was scared of the people, you see. But even Pilate himself declared, this is a just man. There is no cause for which this man is being condemned. You see, you could substitute yourself if one of your children were guilty of a crime or something like that. You could substitute yourself and say, I'll take the penalty. I mean, the law would not really allow that, but talking about justification, you, you might substitute yourself and say, I'll take the penalty. But you can't make yourself to become the sin that they committed. you see that? And Christ was made to be the sin that you and I had committed against God. He was made to be sin who knew no sin. So not only did Christ substitute Himself and come before the bars of justice of men in a kangaroo court to be mocked and scourged, He came before the great throne room in heaven and He declared you innocent and just because He took on your guiltiness. You see that? Child of grace, you won't stand before Him in heaven and bear any of the guilt that you deserve. He bore all of the guilt. And I want you to understand that you don't stand before Him today. Today, now, as a, as a born-again child of God, you are justified by the work of Christ. And remember this, not only was He substituting Himself for you and for your sin, but He was made to be sin who knew no sin. And then at that moment, when the time was right and the, the, the wrath of God was satisfied, He cried out, It is finished. And it says He gave up the ghost. And you understand, when He gave up the ghost, every single sin that you have ever committed and I have ever committed against Him died in His body. I tell you, that's amazing. So when He comes back, He's not bringing your sin with Him. Because it died in His body. You see how that had to take place? He had to be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect man, the perfect God, and take that upon Him, and only He could expunge that. And when He died, it all died with Him in His body. Can we praise Him for that? I think we can. I think we can praise Him for that. We believe that sinners are justified only in the sight of God 
by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Church, do you believe that? Amen. Amen. I do too. May the Lord bless you. If there's one or more here that would like to follow the Lord in New Testament baptism, we give you that opportunity as we stand and sing.